Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to New Books in Technology. As our guest today, we'll have Andrew L. Russell, who is an assistant professor of history and the director of the program in science and technology studies in the College of Arts and Letters at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. Hello, Dr. Russell. How are you? Hi, great. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. Um, I'm thank you for coming on the show today. So you've written a book that's coming out very soon called Open Standards and the Digital Age. So openness, it's one of those buzzwords we, we're starting to hear a lot about lately. Can you explain openness to us? Uh, what, yeah, well, thanks, first of all, for having me on. Um, one, of, You're right. Uh, there's a lot of buzz around openness uh, and its ally transparency. Uh, it's It's one of these values that, uh, everyone wants to aspire to, uh, but uh, we're seeing example after example of uh, powerful people, powerful institutions coming up a little bit short of the rhetoric of pure openness and transparency. And so as a historian, there's something really interesting there, that tension there, uh, the gap between uh, the rhetoric and the reality uh, that's useful for historians uh, to explore. Um, so, uh, the way that I enter into this subject is, uh, by, um, looking at openness, uh, in, in digital networks in particular, in the, in the rhetoric of openness in digital networks. <laughs> Before getting into that, it's, it's useful to observe that that rhetoric, uh, as you say, is all over the place. So I, I start the book with examples of, uh, open science, um, open government, uh, open innovation, open access publishing, uh, the list is actually pretty astonishing once you once you assemble the list of open libraries uh, right. so the librarians are, are up in arms about this and uh, and and so they have some things in common um, there, you know there's a bunch of different definitions of openness and there's a lot of work that's gone into talking about that but uh, I think it's useful to start from the common points uh, that they have first uh, the internet's driving it right um, that in a lot of these movements they didn't uh, exist or not in this form before the internet. Uh, second, it's a openness uh, in my reading contains a vision about uh, that comes from participatory democracy. Uh, it ba- it's a political statement. It says more and more people can get involved in um, in controlling uh, something, whatever it is. So if it's science or innovation or or government or what have you. Um, and this includes commitments to things like uh, due process and uh, transparency and, and so on. Um, so, so we've got techmo- technology, we've got politics. Uh, there's an economic aspect to this that I think is really important too um, that we don't hear so much in the, in the free and open rhetoric, but uh, historically it's a really powerful driver, and that's uh, advocates of openness, and in particular open networks and open standards, which is what I'm interested in, uh, insist that part of the idea is to support a vibrant market. Uh, to support things like entrepreneurship, low barriers to entry, and to oppose uh, centralized power and centralized control 
so uh, the historical institutions that I look at, particularly IBM and AT&T, but uh, a lot of the contemporary discussions are about uh, you know, whether it's the NSA or Google or Facebook or, you know, pick, pick your villain of the week, uh, that remains the same. Um, so we've got technology, we've got politics, we've got economics, and then the cultural thread through this is a sort of narrative of progress that uh, is familiar to people who think about technology and, and technological history, uh, you know, uh, progress is on their side, basically. And so there's a sort of uh, zeal a lot of people uh, characterize this as a religious zeal uh, that that um, drives advocates of openness. Uh, so um, that's how I see it. I don't want to be a referee in, in deciding whose definition of open is is the best or who's more open than someone else. Uh, it, you know, I'm I'm a historian and I'm I'm interested in, in seeing what uh, what their language says about uh, how they see the world. Sure, sure. Now you mentioned a lot of things. Well, first of all, this is a um, technology book, but it's a history of technology um, oriented, but also you mentioned policy and economics as well. So what is, what are the benefits of an interdisciplinary study of a topic such as openness and open standards? Yeah. So, I I mean, the main thing for me uh, is, is, is where do you know? I think all of us who do interdisciplinary work uh, are most successful and most coherent. Uh, and I know this from experience when, when we focus on where we're coming from. Uh, and so, for uh, professional and disciplinary reasons, as well as this intellectual reason, I think it's uh, important uh, to remember that I'm a historian. Uh, and so, I, I look at these things historically. And, and of course, there's a tradition in the history of technology and the history of computing. Uh, that, that looks at these developments in, in the ways that I've um, described. Now, as soon as you start taking this history of technology seriously, you realize that you can't rule out those other perspectives, right? So, of course, the history of technology is going to include some economic uh, things and um, a, a cultural history, a, a gender history, other things like that. And so... Um, so it's it's kind of our burden to be able to weigh all of those things uh, and and still be be coherent. Um, the the exciting thing about writing this book, which is a little bit different from writing my dissertation, so um, maybe I should just say a word about that. Uh, this grows out of my dissertation in a his, history of science, technology, medicine program, and. Uh, when one is writing a dissertation, you know, there's an audience of uh, one to four or five people, right? right? Uh, and, and so that was easier in some senses than figuring out how to write this for uh, a broader audience or this dream, you know, academics have of, of reaching the masses. You know, I, I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, a lot of people care about these topics. Um, economists really care about these topics. Uh, people who care about the Internet and the future of the Internet um, care about things like power and control in the Internet. And so... Um, our instinct is to, as historians, is to you know sort of hide in, in the academy, hide in history, and and only talk to our peers, our colleagues, uh, and that's useful to a certain extent. But the real challenge is to um, you know how do I open up, so to speak, <laughs> the audience and uh, and engage them too. So uh, it was a tricky process. I don't know if I got it right. I guess the readers will, will tell me. But um, that's some of the interest in, in directing it in that way. Oh, great. Great, great. Now, if we want to get into the actual subject matter, just for the uninitiated, can you explain what standards are and what is standardization? 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, that's a you know a tricky question to answer. Um, there's uh, there's a good XK CD uh, comic where where they two guys come together and they say, well, we've got 13 standards for something. What are we going to do? And then they decide to come up with another standard. Uh, so now then they've got 14 standards. Um, and there's a you know another way that we characterize the complexity of this is uh, it's Andrew Tannenbaum who wrote a computer networking textbook in the early 80s, um, and he said uh, something along the lines of you know if, if you don't like the standards we have today, just wait until next week or next year and you'll get a new one. Um, so uh, there's two things. There's standards and there's standardization. And the standard is um, usually refers to a document, uh, some specified way of doing something in a particular way, right? And it's fixed. Uh, and it's supposed to be unchanging, although uh, in, you know, in reality these things change over time. Um, I find it useful, in the introduction I get into this a little bit, useful to distinguish between three different types of standards. Uh, one is a measurement standard. Uh, so things like a meter uh, or a pound, uh, some, you know, some sort of uh, objective unit of measure. Uh, and there's a, there's a really good literature on that in the history of science in particular uh, about where the meter comes from or where the ohm comes from in measure of resistance. Um, so that's one. A second is, uh, is what uh, we can think of as performance standards. So uh, if we want a system or a process to perform in a certain way, uh, and so a good example of those is the ISO 9000 standards for quality control. Uh, so uh, we want, say, a, a production of a, of a, a product like a chair uh, to meet certain quality standards, uh, but, but they don't want to uh, go in and tell the manufacturer how they should make the chair. They just want to make sure that the chair doesn't fall over, you know, is comfortable, whatever comfortable means, uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, it can either, uh, these performance standards can either specify um, a, a process for making something uh, or an outcome. You know, so you need to follow these steps uh, or it just needs to do this and not that. Uh, and so safety standards uh, are good examples of, of certain types of performance standards uh, or design standards. Uh, so we've got measurement, we've got performance, uh, and then we've got the, uh, the third kind, which is what I'm most interested in in talking about networks, and that's um, compatibility standards. So how do we connect things together? Uh, and this uh, characterizes uh, things in, uh, you know, analog things, so screws and nuts, for example. Uh, what's the pitch of a, of a screw thread? What's the dimension of, of the nut or the bolt? Uh, is this width or length? Uh, it also refers to, to can, can capture software. Uh, so things like TCP/IP. How do we get compatibility between uh, different computers or exchanging information over certain networks? Um, so uh, it's really useful to distinguish between those types of standards um, because there's, you know, the the French word for standard uh, or standardization is normalization, and my French is terrible. But uh, and so you know, it it's it's norms. Standards are norms. You know, so it's standard to shake someone's hand. Uh, but um, you know, is that the same as uh, you know a standard for encryption or something? It's it, it, isn't useful at a certain level of specificity to, to think about those things as the same. Okay, so there's three uh, different types of standards. <clears throat> and like I said, I'm most interested in compatibility standards. Um, standardization is a, is a process, right? A social process of um, 
fixing something sure. uh, or making, uh, making local things universal or a little bit more universal. Uh, and so here again, I follow uh, three different uh, types of standardization process or, or trace these out. And there's a big literature on this, and I'm basically summarizing. Um, the first type of, uh, of method of making a standard is what theorists refer to as de facto standards. It just sort of happens. Uh, so we shake hands because it's normal. You know, no one's telling us to do it. Uh, the second way, if you can imagine on the opposite end of the spectrum, is um, de jure standards. They're laws. Uh, if you don't do something, you know, uh, the state could kill you or at least put you in jail. You know, to be a little less extreme or maybe fine you or, or something like that. Um, these are regulations. These are pretty uh, well known to scholars who study regulations and laws and, and so on. Um, then there's a fuzzy middle ground, uh, which uh, we refer to as voluntary consensus standards. Uh, and so this characterizes standards that come out of um, some sort of organization that doesn't have the force of law behind it. Uh, so that could be an engineering society like the IEEE. Uh, it could be uh, some sort of uh, NGO uh, like um, ISO, the International Organization for Standardization. Uh, it could be a trade association um, of a different sort, just some sort of collective of, of companies. So, for example, um, oh, the cellular telecommunications industry, uh, association CTIA in its standards for um, for wireless uh, telephony. Um, it, we can't call it a de facto standard, but we can't call it a government mandated standard either. Uh, and so, uh, this is a really interesting phenomenon socially and historically, uh, and it, it fits into uh, some recent literature where. Uh, in, coming out of business history and organization studies where people want to understand these, uh, this middle ground a little bit better. Uh, so some theorists refer to it as uh, private governance right, is, a, is a buzzword that uh, we hear a lot, is a useful uh, body of literature. Um, uh, and also there's a big body of literature looking at standards. And, and so Joanne Yates and Craig Murphy uh, have written a book on voluntary consensus standards, and they continue uh, to work on this subject um, historically as I do. Uh, and, and there's all these practitioners who are in this world now. So people who participate in, say, the Internet Engineering Task Force or, uh, you know, pick somebody at a company like IBM or Google, they might go to several of these committees uh, because um, they need to be involved in standards for each of those committees. Uh, so uh, it's a long answer, but so standards are something fixed, and standardization is a way to make them fixed, or at least to, to garner some sort of agreement around that fixity. Sure. Now, one of the ideas that you um, state in your book is that standardization can be a form of critique, a critique of ideology. Uh, can you explain that a bit? Sure, yeah. So um, this, this is a good example of, uh, of why it's useful to write an introduction uh, once you're finished with a body of work, once you know what it's about. Uh, this happened in my dissertation where, uh, at the end of my dissertation, where I had looked at the process of making standards in uh, successive communication networks, so from uh, the telephone, uh, wireless telephone, and then computer networks. Um, usually studies look at just one particular technology. Uh, they tend not to link uh, different networks together in that historical uh, way. And so um, I was kind of sitting back and, and thinking about it and realized that in each 
pace, uh, new network standards and uh, new networks, uh, the people who created them were doing something more than just making new stuff. Uh, if When I looked at what they said they were doing and what they hoped to accomplish, um, there was, uh, there was a, a political and a cultural argument uh, to what they were doing. Uh, that they were making something better than what came before. Uh, and it wasn't just better for a technical reason. It was better. Uh, sometimes that was a political claim. Uh, sometimes it's a moral claim. Uh, sometimes it's an economic claim. Uh, and uh, this struck me as really significant. And I, and I didn't really get a good handle on how to talk about that. Um, and so I, I was thinking about criticism and, and critique, which, you know, there's obviously a lot of people have, have thought about that. And, uh, and I came across uh, Gerald Ronick, who's a, a philosopher who I hadn't really uh, encountered before. And he wrote about uh, critique, who's kind of riffing on Michel Foucault's essay, What is Critique? Um, and, and he pointed out something that I thought was really, really important, um, which is that critic, you know, criticism is, is sort of complaining about something, and critique is often seen as that way. It's just simply uh, reacting to something. But there's also an element of critique that means building something anew as well. So once it's one thing to have a criticism of something, but it's kind of something different to, to build something as a response. And so uh, I thought about that and then thought about the historical examples that I had studied and saw that all of the standards makers and network builders uh, were doing that. Um, sometimes uh, they were pretty explicit about it. Uh, and we see this a lot, for example, in the in the rhetoric of uh, the Internet, right, where AT&T was a closed system and the Internet is an open end-to-end -end system. Uh, and so there's, a, there's an argument about control and power there. It's not just that it works better. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll talk about that too, but it does something better for society. Uh, and they're pretty explicit about it. Sometimes that argument or the critique is also implicit uh, in the technology uh, and in the, in the network design and the way that it's promoted. Uh, so um, the engineers won't always, you know, be out in front of a conference saying my way is better because uh, my politics are better, uh, but it's, uh, there's implications of that. And so reading that in the, in the sources is, you know, kind of one of the tricks of the trade of, of pulling that out. Uh, but after I had thought about that, um, it became pretty clear that that's what my story was about. Um, and and uh, the, the final thing that, that I'll say about this, or one more thing I could say, is what really inspired me in this regard was um, historian Bernard Carlson. Bernie Carlson uh, has a great essay about um, Gardner Hubbard, uh, who was uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell's father-in-law and, and sponsor. Uh, so we're talking late, you know, late 1800s. Um, Hubbard hated uh, the Western Union telegraph monopoly. Uh, he thought it was undemocratic. You know, it was a monopoly. He wasn't the only one to, to complain about them. Um, he was especially concerned that it deprived middle-class Americans of information they needed uh, to be good citizens and to be active in uh, market transactions as well. And so part of what motivated him uh, to support uh, Bell financially was that um, – he had been around and around trying to regulate Western Union and lobbying for that, uh, and he hadn't been successful. Uh, and so in Bell uh, and with the telephone, he, he discovered a different strategy, which is to simply build another network, to build something better. Uh, and, and so the, the critique is both implicit and, and explicit in, in Hubbard, uh, maybe not necessarily in Bell. 
uh, but certainly in, in the Hubbard and in, in the structures that Hubbard created to support um, the telephone. Uh, so uh, this, this was pretty incredible for me, actually, to, to realize that this is what I've been talking about. Uh, and so the, the nice opportunity of, of writing a book is to be able to foreground that a little bit more and think through it a little bit more uh, and, and maybe think through uh, the connections that that insight might have to other forms of innovation. Uh, so once I started thinking about critique, uh, I started thinking about Schumpeterian creative destruction, right, which I think has some common characteristics with the way that I've described critique or the way that I understand the, the term uh, through Ronick and Foucault and, and Carlson, which is, you know, you, you build something new uh, and get rid of something old. And it's, uh, you know, when one does that, one frames it as a sort of virtuous act. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that's something that I hope people uh, take away from the book and, and maybe take into other realms and take the idea seriously. Well, in relation to that, I, I want to read you a quote from one of your chapters, and it says, System builders are always engaged in ideological and discursive work, not merely technical work. So I was wondering if you could expand on perhaps that, that quotation. Yeah, so um, that that captures uh, some of the things I was just trying to articulate and I think shows uh, how I've tried to embed my approach to this topic in, um, in the history of technology and the work of people like Thomas Hughes, uh, who's written a lot about or wrote a lot about um, system builders. Uh, and I teach engineers uh, and I work with engineers here at Stevens. And so, um, you know, they're really focused on their technical work and, and they don't really talk about um, uh, the broader belief systems that uh, either that surround them. Sometimes they don't really understand that themselves. You know, I think it's fair to say none of us uh, do fully um, and, and that they're trying to promote as well. Um, they're, they're doing ideological work. And, and so whether uh, it's supporting, uh, to, you know, to bring it back to openness, um, uh, by calling something open, uh, that's a statement of saying this won't be subject to uh, government censors uh, or the monopolists at, you know, pick your monopolist, Google, IBM, you know, whatever, uh, Western Union. Um, so, but they don't need to, you know, write a big long paper about how they hate monopolies or some sort of treatise on uh, antitrust or anti-surveillance. Um, the, you know, just, just by making something that way and calling it open, they've done uh, that ideological work. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, especially doing technical things, that advance normative claims without really being fully uh, aware of what they're doing. It's just kind of assumptions that are buried in there. Uh, and so one thing that history is useful for is to, is to be able to take a step back from, uh, from this work of innovation and newness and everything and, and try and evaluate uh, that work in a deeper uh, cultural frame in a longer frame so we can see long-term consequences. Um, I hope that gets at the question. Oh, yeah. oh yes. Yeah, definitely. good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, and, and you know, it, it, there's, uh, you know, embedded in, in what I'm saying is also some uh, methodological considerations about the history of technology and the history of computing. Um, it can have a, a perception 
of being uh, artifact-focused and inwardly-focused. Uh, so, you know, a bunch of people just care about, you know, different models of trains or compare, you know, different models of computers or something like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's not usually the case. We're cultural historians. Uh, we're interested in these broader social and cultural and political uh, frames uh, in which uh, engineers and system builders lived and, and made. Uh, and so... Um, you know, there's a lot of great work in, in my field in that regard, and I'm simply building on that. Great, great. Now, one of the things uh, in relation to, I think, the system builders and ideological and discursive works you've mentioned is that standardization um, is a social process by which humans come to take things for granted. So then are we forgetting the, the opening ideological and discursive work? Are we just not paying attention to it? Or, or what's happening there? Yeah, I think we tend to... It's easy to forget it. Um, because, you know, once something becomes standard... There, there's a great, great quote that I uh, have either in the introduction or one of the early chapters of the book from an engineer in the, in the 1920s, a guy named Albert Whitney actually a mathematician, he wasn't an engineer. And, uh, and he talks about the tension between uh, standardization and creativity. Uh, and, and he says something along the lines of that standardization fixes advances. It fixes problems that have already been uh, settled and, and leaves them where they belong, namely to the field of routine. Uh, and this frees the, the creative genius. So it frees us to be able to do uh, uh, things that, that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Uh, so for, for example, um, you know, we speak English, and so we don't have to worry about how to communicate with one another. Uh, we can simply do that and then talk about ideas. Right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's when we take things for granted then, um, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, on the one hand, there's some advantages that come from that, uh, we can act more efficiently or, or achieve greater levels of uh, complexity. So we don't need to worry about how our computers are going to exchange uh, video packets. It just happens, and we can have this uh, interesting conversation. Uh, but in making something standard and in arriving at that decision by consensus, right? this, this uh, kind of third mode that I'm interested in, we're always excluding things. Uh, and we're always um, drawing boundaries around what's uh, acceptable or about what's normal, uh, in the, the French word, and what's not. Uh, and so um, it's, you know, just a sort of uh, inevitable part of that process that things are going to be forgotten and left out and uh, obscured. And so... Uh, I think it's really important for historians to, to appreciate this. And, and there's, you know, of course we do. There's a, there's a great literature on, um, uh, on failure in, in business and in technology. You know, what do we do with failed technologies? And there's some fascinating cultural histories, uh, as well as economic histories that we can do with that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's real consequences, social consequences to, uh, leaving things out. Um, and there's a tie-in here with with this, um, you know, uh, aphorism about the the winners write history. 
right? Um, that uh, the things that, that emerge successfully or that triumph uh, are the things that we remember and talk about. Uh, and we tend not to talk about, we tend not to remember um, the things that don't win out, the technologies that fall by the wayside, that are uh, outside the boundaries of the consensus. Um, so uh, this has real consequences for how we think about and talk about the Internet, uh, which we can we can talk about, but um, I think it's you know it's a more general problem in, in standardization. Um, and it's just sort of a natural feature of the process, inherent feature of the process. Okay, great. Now we're talking about how we take things for granted, perhaps the discursive and ideological you know, implications of system building. I'm wondering though, with standards. Is there a danger of bias in standards at all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is the sort of thing that when we think about different ways to make standards, uh, we need to think really carefully about this. Um, and and I, I think the, the professional standard setters have, have done a pretty good job at thinking about this, although the problems simply don't go away. So it's a, it's a matter of uh, – they deal with it in a couple of ways. Um, and they, the best way I think to talk about it is in terms of legitimacy. So, um, you know, bias is, I think, an important uh, marker of a standard perhaps not being viewed as legitimate uh, or as legitimate by as broad a, a population as, as one would like. Um, so uh, the people talk about legitimacy and standardizations talk about standardization talk about input legitimacy and output legitimacy. Uh, and so what do they mean by that? Input legitimacy means that um, there's sufficient representation uh, at the table. You know, there's always a table <laughs> involved uh, here, usually, usually metaphorically, but uh, sometimes there's a real table. Uh, that there's not enough voices at the table, that there's not sufficient representation. Uh, and it's pretty easy to see how um, bias could come in at that level. So, uh, for example, um, the main body in the United States today for voluntary consensus standards is, is ANSI, the American National Standards Institute. Uh, it was created just after, uh, actually during World War One, just at the end, um, and for the first 20 or 30 years, there was no way for organized labor to be involved. Um, it, was, uh, this, it was a group dominated by uh, trade associations and engineering societies with some representation from the federal government. But um, like much of American society in the 20s, there's, you know, labor, organized labor didn't have a voice. Uh, this changed with the Wagner Act in 1935, but uh, I think it's still an open question about uh, to what extent are, are, is labor's voices heard uh, in the creation of standards? Um, this is something, by the way, uh, parenthetically, uh, if you really want to get someone worked up about standards, uh, ask them about the common core education standards. <laughs> <laughs> and if and if their points of view are incorporated in those standards, uh, and then you know if you're smart, you should either duck or <laughs> or sit back for a little bit because um, the answer is going to be no. Um, so uh, input legitimacy uh, is is one way uh, to think about it. The other way to think about it is output legitimacy. So uh, you know we've accepted in in democratic societies and representative governments that we can't. Uh, logistically have everyone at the table. Uh, and so uh, 
Um, the question then is, can we have representatives uh, setting uh, rules for formal standards, for de jure standards, uh, or consensus standards uh, that take um, everyone's interests into account? Uh, and this is obviously tricky. You know, this is basically uh, political history of the last couple hundred or thousand years, depending on, on your point of view. Um, how we can do this well is, is uh, you know, then people who are in law schools, you know, get interested in this. And it's about administrative procedures and rights of appeal, uh, how to judge if a process is sufficiently representative, um, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, these are really important questions. Um, I don't think there's any uh, best answer for it. Um, there are some interesting models, you know, back to this private governance question. There's some interesting models in uh, from the voluntary consensus standards world uh, that we can think about, groups that um, – that see themselves as sufficiently representative and go go really out of their way uh, to try and eliminate um, bias. But, uh, you know, again, as a historian, I think we gave up a long time ago on the notion that something could possibly be unbiased. Uh, there's always bias. The question is just to what extent do we recognize those biases and what can we do to overcome them? Uh, yeah, so there's there's winners and losers, no question about it. So then do or could standards promote or erect barriers to entry for new uh, either associations or organizations or businesses, depending upon the standards? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, uh, they can do this unconsciously or they can do it consciously. Um, so there's... Uh, as a regulatory matter, this gets really interesting. Um, uh, we saw it, for example, in the Microsoft antitrust case in the 1990s. Um, if Microsoft was, uh, you know, to the antitrust people alleged, uh, erecting exactly what you said, barriers to entry, especially for um, uh, browser makers, right, um, because of the, the standards in, uh, that they were building within uh, the Microsoft operating system within Windows. Um, so they did that on purpose, and, and uh, the government regulators felt uh, that this was important enough uh, and clear enough that they should intervene. Um, sometimes in the in the voluntary committees and in the industry committees, um, the, some some of the people who who represent companies in those committees can be very skillful. Uh, and my book's got a lot of different stories about this. Uh, the folks from IBM in the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s uh, emerge as particularly skillful in in playing the game. Um, and and the way to do that is you know anyone who's listening or or, or you who are familiar with uh, committee work kind of have an intuitive sense about how to do this. Uh, you know, you, you set the agenda uh, in certain ways, uh, structure the process in certain ways to um, do your, and make alliances in certain ways to do your best to make sure that the outcome favors your own interests uh, and assume that everyone else is doing more or less the same thing. So there's the, there's real strategic, um, it's unbelievable actually that the strategies going on behind the scenes uh, in these committees. Um, so there's a real uh, intentional way of doing that. Um, there's also an interesting dynamic 
that this happens unintentionally sometimes too. Uh, and so psychologists and organizational theorists have a pretty good handle uh, on this. Um, uh, Irving Janus, a, a scholar's work I didn't um, quite uh, come to grips with until after I finished the book. But he's got a book called Groupthink. Uh, and it's you know a familiar notion if, if anyone's read, say, Ludwig Fleck and thought about thought collectives uh, or, or Kuhn later talking about similar, Thomas Kuhn talking about similar issues that um, uh, groups, social groups uh, cohere well when they have shared interests and, uh, and they don't necessarily do a job a good job uh, shifting those interests too well. Um, so uh, a good example uh, in this regard is the Internet Engineering Task Force, which sets uh, standards for the Internet. Um, and the way that uh, it's trying to deal with some of the, the problems in security uh, that, that Edward Snowden has um, revealed. Uh, and so uh, cries went out right away, uh, Bruce Schneier, amongst other people, said, we've got to re-engineer the internet. Um, and, you know, it's not that easy for a standards body like the IETF to just shift directions that quickly. Um, there's, there's, you know, they're, they're used to doing things in a certain way, uh, both organizationally and uh, there's a sociological aspect of, of groupthink there uh, where, you know, they're not going to change their minds that quickly. Um, so, uh, so this is lock-in, you know, a, a sort of deep example of lock-in that, that economists talk about. Uh, and, yeah, it can be a real problem. Um, it, it can lead to stagnation, certainly, both in, in terms of technology and, and culturally as well. Great. So the current debates on openness, what are, I should say, the current debates dealing with openness and open standards? I know you just mentioned Snowden and, and some of the ideas about re-engineering the internet. Can you perhaps elaborate on some more uh, openness debates that are, that are popping up with relations to standards and the digital communication networks? Sure. So, um, the the two i mean there's so many that it's been tricky to follow closely um the production schedule for the the book has you know been like most academic books a little slower uh than i would like and so um in in the early phases i would uh see things like this pop up in the news and and think oh no my moment's here and it's gone uh and then they keep coming up. So, um, so you know, optimistically, I think this this might mean that that my analysis has some legs. Uh, hopefully, that's true. Um, so, and I, you know, I, I don't follow all of them that closely, but two uh, I have followed. So, um, uh, Snowden, and then uh, the net neutrality uh, debate, or uh, what's been recast as debate over the open internet. Um, so, Snowden, I think, you know, has been talked about a lot and, and it, it is a great example of the central irony of openness and transparency where uh, on the on the first page of my book I talk about this um, uh, the uh, open government um, executive order essentially that, that Obama issued on his first day of office uh, and I've got it here he says we will work together to ensure the public trust and establish a system of transparency public participation and collaboration. Openness will strengthen our democracy and promote efficiency and effectiveness in government. Uh, it's, it's really, it's the open government initiative. Uh, it's really the perfect statement of the different um, 
you know, political values uh, of openness. Um, you don't need me to tell you that uh, his government hasn't quite lived up to it. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just Snowden, it's, it's all over the place. Um, and it, and I make this statement not blaming him personally or the people who work for him, who I think are, are probably pretty good public servants. Um, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. There, there's just some things, especially in national security, it's a real uncomfortable area that, that Stone's opened up for us, that uh, governments want to keep secret, uh, need to keep secret, have always kept secret. Um, and, uh, you know, we can agree or disagree about whether they should be keeping secrets or not, but, um, you know, th- this is kind of the, the problem. Um, and there's a big debate about it. Uh, as you know, that's kind of an understatement. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think the most sensible voices in the debate, uh, Snowden's actually one of them. I, I saw him uh, appear via robot in, in a TED Talk interview with, uh, I think it was Chris Anderson, uh, in the past week or so. And he supports uh, the national security state. Uh, it, it, his criticisms get into some of these process issues that that uh, that I was talking about before in response to your issues about bias, um, which is that you know we need better review mechanisms. We need more transparency somewhere in the system. You know, you and I probably shouldn't know exactly what. Uh, American spies uh, or Russian spies or, or Chinese spies are doing, uh, but we could probably feel better about uh, the way that our government uh, is accountable, uh, at least in some way, about about you know reporting that and about knowing what's going on. So, um, you know, Snowden's not out on on some left or right wing about this. I think he's kind of uh, in a in a pretty comfortable middle area, pretty sensible um, middle area. Um, the second uh, example uh, that I mentioned is network neutrality or the open internet and um, here's an example where uh, I think um, historians can make a really useful contribution and where getting the history right really matters Uh, and and I get into this a little bit in the book's conclusion Um, if we don't understand uh, how the internet came to be uh, or how other computer networks came into existence, uh, or that the TCPIP internet emerged uh, as one design amongst many designs uh, for different types of networks, and, and why it emerged that way. Uh, and the quick answer is because of uh, heavy Department of Defense subsidies, kind of skewed um, market forces. Uh, if we don't account for that, uh, and then we're going to, um, you know, make some kind of mistaken assumptions about uh, the internet. Um, and, and there's a really, I, I think a really good way to think about this is to ask the question, when did the internet become open? Uh, it wasn't always talked about as an open system. Uh, it was only in the early 1990s that, um, that people started talking about the open internet. If you can search for it on uh, Google or, or your favorite search engine, um, they borrowed this term from uh, from a rival networking system uh, called Open Systems Interconnection. Uh, that's the subject of um, Chapter Seven in my book: uh, an international collaboration of of uh, researchers trying to build a consensus 
computer networking architecture. Uh, that crashed and burned for reasons we can get into, and the Internet uh, flourished uh, because the Department of Defense was, was funding it lavishly. Uh, and then caught on because it was free. It had, it's, had been subsidized, so um, you know, there's no, no cost to, to adopt it. Um, so uh, there's this veneer from the vantage point of the end user of freedom and openness in the internet, even though its origins are, are you know, anything but free. Uh, and, and it came from what Paul Edwards has usefully called the closed world, right? the military, industrial, academic complex of, of Cold War America. Um, so I, I read debates about, uh, you know, I read the op-ed pages and it, and it drives me nuts a little bit because uh, they, they say the internet's always been open, uh, which is just, you know, factually, empirically not true. Uh, or, uh, or people try and marshal origin myths about the internet. So this is really irritating exchange on the op-ed pages of the, of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal last year, where um, uh, Stephen Johnson, a technology writer, said, the internet, we invented that. Uh, as if, um, you know, you and I and Stephen Johnson and my friends with our laptops could invent a, a, a technological system like the Internet, which is, you know, again, plainly not true. Um, and, and then Gordon Kravitz, this, this guy, a former publisher of the Wall Street Journal, basically said no private capital uh, invented that and, and somehow credited Xerox Park with the invention of the Internet, which, again, doesn't stand up to basic you know, undergrad level history scrutiny, uh, high school level scrutiny, Wikipedia, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's not bad. So, um, so the way we talk about, uh, these things, I think is influenced, uh, by, by, uh, our, the stories we tell about their origins. So then how do, you know, how does this fit into uh, contemporary discussions? Well, I think if we knew about net neutrality and about the open internet, I think if we knew a little bit more about this history and knew about uh, the big, big money behind uh, not only the internet, but different uh, failed alternatives for networking architectures, uh, we'd understand that uh, this issue is not quite as simple as I want Netflix uh, or I want Hulu. Uh, that there's this really... Uh, complex, um, mostly obscure uh, set of relationships and alliances, um, not only around standards and, and technical things, but also economic um, arrangements. Um, and, and so some of the better uh, commentary about uh, net neutrality gets at this a little bit. Uh, and we're starting to see it a little bit more in the public view because, uh, you know, we're reading about agreements between Netflix and Comcast. Uh, and people are starting to get the sense uh, or starting to hear of companies like Level 3 or Cogent or other, uh, you know, um, backhaul type uh, providers. Uh, and so I think that's a more realistic conversation to have. Uh, I, I'm skeptical of people who say we need to keep the internet open so that, um, you know, Verizon, who you don't like uh, uh, because they charge you too much money or something, that's the person you pay, uh, is going to block you from somebody else. Uh, I don't think that's a helpful way to parse the issue. Um, and, you know, it's very useful rhetoric, but it's not a helpful way to uh, promote greater understanding of the issue. Sure. Now, if a person wanted to purchase your book and to really read about the history and some historical origins related to debates on standardization and openness and open standards, what 
if you had to give a short blurb about your book for the the person looking for a, a book about these issues, what would you say? Or could you come up with something? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the question is, how did openness become so central to the way we talk about communication networks and information networks in the 21st century, in the digital age? Uh, it wasn't always this way. If we look at communication networks uh, of previous centuries and of the recent past, uh, they're characterized by regimes of centralized uh, control, either monopoly control in the bell system, telephone system, uh, or government control of the ARPANET, and, and which emerged into the Internet. Uh, and so that transition takes some explaining uh, historically. Um, so uh, what they'll take away from it is that... Uh, they'll get kind of an antidote to the uh, rhetoric and, and perceptions that the digital age is something all new. Uh, they'll see that many of the practices from the digital, uh, that, we, that we associate with the digital age, uh, many of the ideas like openness um, uh, have long historical roots uh, and there's a long tradition of people talking about the, the various advantages and problems uh, of uh, centralized or decentralized control over technological systems. And what can we expect the book on the shelves? Uh, I'm told April 4th. Uh, I'm told that that uh, that's when it will come. So I'm I'm hoping that they're sticking to that. Uh, the date slipped a couple of times, uh, you know, in, in production. So I'm sure they're just um, making sure it's perfect. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I I think it should be within a couple of weeks. Um, I actually saw uh, and have uh, in my hands uh, bound proofs that uh, the publisher um, sent to uh, a conference that I attended couple weeks ago, the Business History Conference. So um, it looks like a book. It's the uncorrected proof, so it's not quite the real thing. Uh, but uh, Cambridge is coming out with it. My publisher's Cambridge University Press. They've got uh, paperback and hardback copies uh, available. Um, I've got, And it's on sale on Amazon and, and all of your favorite um, online booksellers. Uh, there's a, a discount code, uh, which I'm going to post uh, on my website that Cambridge, you know, encouraged me to do. Uh, if you buy the book through Cambridge, it's 20% off. Uh, and that will be on my website, which is a Russell.org slash open. Uh, so, um, you know, I encourage people to, to, uh, take a look, hopefully get it from their library. Uh, let me know what you think and, um, yeah, enjoy it. Thank you very much. Well, that's open standards and the digital age. Thank you, Dr. Russell, for appearing on the show. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity and the time you spent with me.